Well, good evening. It is, as was said, good to see you again this evening. We have the great joy before us tonight in continuing to study a new series we started last Sunday called Ecclesia. Ecclesia, of course, stands for, it's Greek for the called out ones or the church, and uh, that is who we are. Uh, It's interesting, I spent some time just this past week just looking through my library uh, in my office and just just to pull out how many church manuals there were. And I use the term manuals because there's a lot of things in that category, like how to fill in the blank for church, uh, how to plant a church, how to expand the church, how to uh, evangelize better through the church, all these titles that are there. And I just kept pulling off Uh, Book after book after book after book. There have been literally thousands of books written on what is the church. But there's one that's the most important. And we're going to spend time tonight because each one of those books has a preconceived notion that their philosophy, their idea, or even their biblical theology is superior to everyone else's. It's interesting how many books there are then that we can come up with over the eons, not eons, the 2,000 years of church history, I'm careful with that, uh, that have really developed this idea of what is the church. Some of them have been very good, but you know very good and well that there are a significant number of attacks on the church, and some of those have come from within the church. Tonight, we have the great opportunity to study perhaps the most important of the topics in relationship to the church, and that is the head, the head of the church. I'm going to tell you that there is literally uh, multiple series that could be developed out of that title, as indicated by the thousands of books. Uh, There's a lot that we could learn. We're going to hit five quick points this evening. There's a few things that I want us to pull out first. The English term church is mixed along with the Scottish word kirk and the German word kirch, and it's derived from the Greek word kyriakon, which is the neuter adjective of kyrios, or kyrios, which is Lord, and means belonging to the Lord. I found there's richness in that statement. That's not a New Testament word. It's not a word that came out. In fact, it is a word that is similar to this, is used today or in the pages of Scripture. It's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, as it refers to the Lord's Supper, and in Revelation 1.10, in relationship to the Lord's Day. But we took that term out of the pages of Scripture in just those two verses, and we've smashed together both the Greek term for Lord and the English term and the Scottish term and the German term, and we came up with church. It's unique, but it literally reveals who is our head. The Greek word for the gathering or the called out ones is the title of our series, which is Ecclesia. 
That is the term when you find the word church used in the pages of the New Testament, it is referring or using most of the time, if not all of the time, to this word ecclesia. But we've used a different word in relationship to the church, a word that points directly to our head. My hope tonight, because it would be very easy for us to be somewhat academic in our look tonight, and there is a significant danger to that, and I'm alerting us to it because what we have to look at tonight is the strict theological truth of who gets to make decisions in the church and why. It has a practical implication, obviously, but it is also a recognition that there is something that God is doing in the church that is uniquely and distinctly his. And because of that, there is a tremendous amount of theology that we're going to try to cover very, very quickly in these five points. Recognize that each one of these five points literally, I I literally, and I don't write like this, but I literally could write a book on each of these five. There is so much information here. So let us not allow it to become academic, nor should we believe that it's exhaustive. That's the same warning I gave us last week. This is not an exhaustive series. This is a series that gets us to understand where we perhaps have erred in the church age and how we need to be brought back into conformity with the church as God designed her to be. It is not left up to us as to what the church should do or how she should function. There are certain elements that we participate in and we certainly must be diligent in the work of the church, which we will come to towards the end, Lord willing. But we should be those who understand who our head is and what then we are to do about it. That changes what we do. And it changes what your leaders do. And so, therefore, my hope is that we fall in love even more with our Savior tonight. That we understand the church better. And that we do repent of our abuses of the church. How we've tried to conform her to our standards. And how... Uh, we would then be committing to be found faithful in doing what the church is commanded to do. So those are my goals. And so be looking for those as we traverse these five critical themes of the head of the church. As we do so, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you tonight, gathered together as a called-out group, an ecclesia. Lord, we know that there is much debate on who the head of the church is. Maybe not in the theological sense, but in the pragmatic sense. But tonight as we study deeply into the theological truths of what is ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, may we be found as willing hearts to repent for the abuses that we have thrust upon the body of Christ as we try to conform her to our standards, maybe even conforming her to our generational likes and dislikes. We also recognize that we are then negligent in doing that, is drawing it to ourselves and defining it ourselves. We're negligent in doing the good work that is ours to do in the church. So Lord, tonight we pray that you'd give us understanding hearts, that you'd give us hearts willing to be diligent students of your word, and that we'd let your word speak for itself, even as we jump around through a number of texts that we would, with renewed vision and clarity, see the church woven through the pages of the New Testament and specifically that we would see the role of Christ as our head. 
may we take great comfort in knowing that Christ is our head. Lord, these truths that we learned tonight all point to the magnificence, to the majesty, to the awe-inspiring work of Christ, to the very songs that we just sang, including the, la- the middle one, yet not I, but Christ. Lord, we want to sing boldly these great truths with renewed understanding and renewed vigor tonight. So we pray that you'd give us understanding hearts, give me the words to speak, that they would be from you. Allow us to be changed and transformed by your word tonight. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to encourage you, before we jump in, to start in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a book that uh, is tremendous. It is actually one of those, I said, be in prayer for uh, Sunday night. I'm working in Sunday night. This is kind of a, a short series to kind of get us up through into the holidays. And, and it's scary to think that Christmas is only, only a very short period of time away. Uh, Thanksgiving is coming very, very soon, and so it kind of cuts into our Sunday evenings, and so this series is designed to get us up into uh, those holiday seasons and then beyond just a little bit, and so uh, what we're working on after that is a very very long, in-depth study in the book of Isaiah, following themes through Isaiah. So last week I asked you to pray for that study as we're developing it. I was very ambitious. I thought I could get it all done. I started working on it, and I was, I'm, I'm kind of stubborn. You know, my kids were like, my kids were actually vocal at that moment. Uh, so uh, I, I'm kind of stubborn. I'm going to push things as long as I can push them. And I was pushing this study as much as I could before I was like, okay, fine. I can't get it all done. I'm going to have to take a step back. We're going to prepare some more. So I've asked you to pray for that study. One of the other studies that I'm attempting to do at the same time is a combination of Leviticus and Hebrews. So I don't know if that one will ever come to fruition. Uh, I'm working on it right now, and I think it would be a fantastic study, but we're going to spend some time mainly tonight in the book of Hebrews, and it is a direct result of that time spent preparing for a Hebrews-Leviticus study. I don't know if that one's ever going to happen, but that that one would be a great study We're going to learn a lot of the principles tonight, though, as we study through the book of Hebrews. If you have not spent time in Hebrews, go home tonight before you go to bed and read all 13 chapters. And then wake up tomorrow and read the first five chapters, and then five more throughout the day, and then complete the last three at the end of the day. Spend time in the book of Hebrews. I want to start where the writer of Hebrews starts. He says this, Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is far more excellent than theirs. We're four verses in. Consider the wonder of those verses. Four verses. Just a few of the phrases to draw out. He is the one who created the world. He is appointed heir of all things. He is, this is the most significant one, and I've spent long periods of time dwelling on these truths. He is the radiance 
of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Let those words resonate. We're not talking that Christ is like God. We're not talking that he is similar to God. He is the exact imprint of the Father. So when you see Christ, you see the Father. When you serve Christ, you serve the Father. This is a significant and stunning statement of the authority of the Son of God. This is a staggering and stunning statement in relationship to the Trinity itself. And the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, hello, I'm writing to you Hebrews. He jumps right in to some of the most magnificent theology in all of Scripture. In light of that, we turn because we understand one of these phrases here that is very, very important is this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Beloved, you wouldn't be here. You would have no hope of eternity if it were not for that statement. If Christ did not do that statement, you have no hope for the future. But because Christ did, because he is the exact imprint, the radiance of the glory of God, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, and that he, sat, that he made purification for sins and sat down. There's no more work to be done. Think of the wonder and the awe of our Savior, who is the head of the church. Our outline is what we have been using in times past, both in the study of Ruth and now in our study of Ecclesia. I've just given you some points. I want you to write down in those points, between those points, what it is that really stands out to you. Maybe it's a verse, maybe it's a, a statement, whatever it is, write out something there in your bulletin between these statements that would indicate further study, an opportunity for you to advance. As we begin to understand Ecclesia, the head of the church, Christ is our Savior and the Savior of the church. So tonight, we're going to spend most of our time in this great book of the book of Hebrews. We're going to bounce around. Now, I'm going to tell you, as I said, I believe I said this last week, kind of get your running shoes on your fingertips because we're going to be moving through other pages of, or other books as well. But we're going to try to concentrate in the book of Hebrews. So we're not always going to bounce out. I may reference a verse. We may look at a verse here or there that's outside of the book of Hebrews. But I'm going to try to stay here in Hebrews recognize, as I've already said, I want to continue to put this disclaimer out there. This is not an exhaustive study of the head of the church, nor is it even an exhaustive study of the head of the church in the book of Hebrews. There's much more that we have to learn here, so far deeper that you could dig in and digest the great material that is before us in the Word of God that Hebrews says is sharper than any two-edged sword. So let it cut us tonight. Let it divide the thoughts and the intentions of the heart as we dig into it. This is an important book, and I want us to begin to see the Savior in this book. Hebrews chapter 2. By the way, we've already looked into chapter 1. You would do well to memorize at least the first three verses of the book of Hebrews. But let's move over to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Uh, the 
writer of Hebrews is moving in. By the way, is, you know, one of the great questions of the book of Hebrews is who wrote Hebrews? I'm going to leave that as a study question for you. Say, well, Pastor, that's a trick question. It kind of is a trick question. But we can rule out a certain group of people. And the, the pages, and really the first two chapters, help us rule out a certain group of people who could not have written the book. And suddenly, most of the people who you think could have written the book are discounted and removed because of a statement that's made in chapter 2. And so we're not going to get there today. Just enjoy that as one of the things that you get to study as you read through the book of Hebrews. Uh, and then come talk to me about it. I'm going to tell you, I don't know. So, but I want to know what you think of who the writer of Hebrews is. If I ever speak through the, writer, through the book of Hebrews, I will give you my idea of who it is who wrote the book of Hebrews. But we're going to get into that later. That's just a fun little rabbit trail that we should follow at some point. But Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, the scripture says, But we see him, that is Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through sufferings. There's a tremendous amount of theology, but when we begin to understand our theme, we're talking about who is the head of the church, and we understand that the Savior is the head of the church, we have to ask why. Why is he the head of the church? What gives him the distinct privilege and unique position of being the head of the church. Well, the writer of Hebrews gets right to it. He tells us that he is the one who created all things. He was made a little lower than the angels, but that by suffering death, so that the grace of God, everyone could be sanctified if we were to go into verse, the end of verse 10 and into verse 11. So there is a significant statement. He is the founder of our salvation, perfect, rather, through suffering. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You are not sanctified. Listen carefully, because we're going to talk about sanctification later tonight. You are, and we're not going to come back to this verse, but you are not sanctified by any effort, moral or otherwise, that you put forth towards your salvation. That is not your sanctifying factor. You are made pure because of Christ alone. And so he is, this is one of the key distinctives. Now we have the process of sanctification, don't confuse the two. But you are not made sanctified by your own effort. You are made sanctified by what Christ did for you. So let us not confuse the two as similar as they may seem. We understand that this is a key passage of the work of Christ. He is the Savior whose death was, by the way, the text says, for all. That his death was for all. But it was, we recognize, effective for those who believe. We also, keeping this in mind, we're, we're following this theme of Christ dying in our place, suffering and dying in our place from the book of Hebrews. Turn over to chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9. And verses 19 through 21, where the scripture says this in verse 19 of Hebrews 9. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with the water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. 
And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. I want to stop there for just a moment because you need to understand what the Old Testament saint understood. When it came to the issues of sin, blood was required. When sin had been the offense, blood had to be shed. And it was shed not just in the shedding of blood, but also in the covering of blood and the sprinkling of blood everywhere. Everywhere. Did you catch where it was at? He sprinkled the tent and all the vessels that were used in worship in verse 21. Verse 20, he sprinkled it with scarlet wool and with hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So even the people were sprinkled with blood. There's blood everywhere because sin was everywhere. Blood is a significant element. The shedding of blood was required for the atonement. And this blood element, this is why, by the way, it is very important for New Testament saints to study Leviticus and Hebrews together. Because what we don't understand in Leviticus, because we don't make sacrifices today, because we had the one perfect sacrifice, which is where we're building, because we have the one perfect sacrifice, we kind of forget. Maybe it's negligence. Maybe it's uh, ignorance. But we kind of forget the cost of sin. But every day, the temple, there was a clear example of the cost of sin. The bleeding of the sheep and goats as they were paraded to the sacrifice. The sound of the calves on their way to being sacrificed. The sound of those animals being sacrificed. The smell of their bodies burning in offering. The sights and sounds of the blood being sprinkled were all reminders of the terrible cost of sin. It is easy for us to forget that today, to overlook it today. But the Jewish people knew that sin had to be atoned for by blood Every Jewish person knew that the ratification of the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, was by blood. God required there to be blood shed for the remission of sin, for the covering of sin in the Old Testament, for the remission of sin in the New. Look into verse 22 now. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Think of how stark that is in our world today when there are those who try to say that they're following after God, that God's forgiven them of their sin, but they recognize no blood being spilled for them. Now, that could be a work, so don't don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is there's a, a large number of people who believe that they are Christians simply because of their good works. There's no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus had to shed his blood to ratify the new covenant. We remember this every Sunday when we partake in the Lord's table. In fact, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, the Lord is celebrating the first Passover or the last Passover meal with the disciples before the one that he will celebrate with them anew in the kingdom. 
but he also is instituting the Lord's table in this Passover meal. And Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, he said, this is the blood of the covenant, of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Christ before the cross knew the price of the cross. And Christ, jump over one chapter here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11, 12, is the one sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 11 and 12, notice the scripture. It says, And every priest, verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Beloved, Take a moment and think through the process. Think through the process of what is being done in this moment. In the process of what is being done in this moment. What the writer of Hebrews is illustrating is the countless sacrifices, one right after the other, and the priest going from one right after the other, and the priest himself, if you go uh, further up into chapter 9, the priest himself having to make offering and sacrifices for himself repeatedly so he was qualified to make sacrifices for others. You have this continual, perpetual cycle of just covering sin, and then it stops. And how does it stop? It stops in verse 12 But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was done. And Christ offered himself once for all. Why is this important? Because there's a large segment of those who call themselves Christians who deny this truth. And every time they take the Lord's Supper, they believe that they are re-crucifying Christ. Why is this important? Because that same large segment and add many others believe that there is someone else who is the head of the church besides Christ or maybe in addition to Christ. And they call him the Pope. The resurrection, or rather the work of Christ, was complete and filled to its fullness. You can't add to it because he is the Savior of the church. By the way, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, reminds us of the power of the resurrection of Christ, and it affirms that the work of Christ was fully accomplished. That is, the resurrection affirms that the work of Christ was and is fully accomplished. Why is that important, church? Because if you don't have a Savior, there's nothing different from you than Hamas or Islam in any other of its forms. We would be just as lost as they. But we have a Savior who paid the price. We need to move on. I could literally spend all evening here, and we spent about half of our time on the first of five points. Let's move on. He is our shepherd. He is our shepherd. We just sang of this. Uh, when, when we just sang the hymn just a moment ago, 
Yet Not I, But Christ. It's a modern hymn, I guess you would call it. It was written in 2018, so it's modern. Uh, The words speak of a shepherd. The words speak of a savior. What a powerful testimony of the message that is before us. He is our shepherd. And we're going to spend a lot of time here this evening and Uh, maybe we'll split this up into two if we don't get all the way through tonight, but we're going to spend some time here in Hebrews chapter 13. And these two verses, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. So you need to memorize verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1, and you need to memorize these two verses of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. This is kind of that benediction, the exaltation, the climax of the book of Hebrews. And notice what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, dissect that and spend time in it, especially the titles and the workings of Christ. Let's dig into one first. Uh, He is the great shepherd. That's found right in the middle of verse 20. He is the great shepherd. The Bible often refers to those who are against the Lord, those who are evil in the sight of the Lord, as those who are lost as sheep without a shepherd. Every time you see Israel wandering away from the Lord or you see another people wandering away, you see the Lord call them, or many times you see the Lord calling them lost as sheep without a shepherd, even into the New Testament. Remember, that's what Jesus calls the people of Israel, that they're lost, a sheep without a shepherd. Abraham, by the way, this is a beautiful imagery. Abraham, Isaac, and Moses were all shepherds. But believers are sheep with a shepherd far greater than Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. By the way, there's one day, and I'll I'll walk us through someday, Lord willing, there's a lot that we've got to do. We we better get to heaven quickly, because... There's a lot we've got to do otherwise. Um, But walking through what a shepherd does for the sheep is a staggering statement of God's tender, loving, merciful care for you and I who know Christ as Savior. It's a beautiful agrarian picture of the head of the church. Christ is the great shepherd, which is very different from other shepherds in Scripture, including the pastoral shepherds of today. In fact, the word for pastor Poetman is for the one who spends time out in the pasture. He's the shepherd. So we still use these terms today. Shepherding is hard, exhausting work. Your elders and your pastors are called the shepherd as under-shepherds. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting because... We don't know the thoughts and the intentions of every individual. We don't know what you're struggling with, what you're not struggling with. And yet, we are called to the work of tending, caring, and protecting the sheep. But that can only be done in the strength and the calling of the Lord. And so every under-shepherd looks and casts his eyes up to the chief shepherd. One day we'll walk through all of this picture. We just need to understand it for tonight. It is a great joy, by the way, to know that your under-shepherds and all of us are insufficient, but the great shepherd is not. Isn't it a joy to know that he's not? Your pastor is insufficient. 
Your elders are insufficient. But the great shepherd is not. Praise God that the head of the church is not only our Savior, but our great shepherd, who lovingly, tenderly cares for his sheep. And sometimes that tender, loving care is some chastening that comes along the way. Someday we'll get into that, too. I'll show you those pictures in Scripture. But in order to understand this, we also need to understand the work of the shepherd. Notice what the shepherd does in verse 21 of this text. It says, equipping you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. The great shepherd is working in you to do that which is pleasing in his sight. There is a pull when we submit to the chief shepherd. There is a pull to obedience. The great shepherd is working and equipping us to do his will. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that he does it through his word. The word of God is, is adequate and faithful to accomplish every good work, to equip you to accomplish every good work. That's a key text of the authority of the word of God. But also in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, God works through the under-shepherds to do that as well. He's gifted men in the church to be faithful in leading the church. And so God is actively at work in equipping you through his word, and he's actively at work in equipping you through the ministers, the under-shepherds that he sends to us. And also, turn back now, Hebrews chapter 2. By the way, we're returning to chapter 13 in a few moments. But Hebrews chapter 2, and pick this up as well. Our shepherd is not one who is removed. If, or, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 The scripture says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Paul will pick up on this theme again in chapter 4 and illustrate that he was tempted as we are tempted. The great truth is our shepherd helps us because he knows what we are going through. We don't have a distant shepherd who has hired underlings to do his bidding and his work, and then one day soon he'll return and just see how everything's going. That's the idea that we sometimes live in the church with, but that's not what Christ has done. And it's not left up to under-shepherds to go their own separate way. They are not permitted to do so. God is a near and imminent shepherd Peter provides a greater understanding, and write this verse down. We don't have time tonight to turn there, but 1 Peter chapter 5.10, it's one that you should well know in this relationship of a shepherd to his sheep. It reminds us that when we have suffered for a little while, the Lord will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. So while there is sufferings, and we've been studying this in 1 Thessalonians in the morning, when there is sufferings, the chief shepherd knows what those are. And he has endured sufferings like our sufferings and more, and he gently cares for, restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes us. That is the work of the chief shepherd. Now, pastors can sometimes try to get into the way of that. It's easy for us to try to get into the way of that. Or we can come in in cooperation with it or cooperation with it. And that is what we desire to do. 
Again, moving on rapidly. So our head is our Savior. Our head is our shepherd. Our head is also our great high priest. Our great high priest. And staying here in Hebrews, again, we're going to move over to chapter 8, and then we're going to back up to chapter 7. So turn to chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. The scripture says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, a minister in the holy places, in a true tent that the Lord set up, not man. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, he's differentiating between the temple and the tabernacle, and he's he's appointing to where our high priest sits, where our high priest resides. We have a great high priest who is not bound by the limitations of the tabernacle or the temple. By the way, an interesting sidelight, and we're going to go over time if I go far down this rabbit trail, but you could talk to me afterwards. It's interesting to hear what is going on in Israel today as to the reason why Hamas attacked Israel last week, or a week ago, Saturday. When you listen to the reason that they attacked, it has everything to do with the Temple Mount. Why? Because even Satan knows that one day there will be a restored temple there. Sidelights, interesting, little tidbit, ask me about it later. But it's fascinating to see that Christ is above that. He sits in uh, a heavenly throne, the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, a minister in the holy places, a true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The priesthood of Christ is of an order higher than the Levitical or the Arianic priesthood. When you understand the priesthood, you understand that in order to be a priest in the nation of Israel, to serve in the temple, you had to be of the Levitical priesthood or of the Arianic line from Aaron. And so when we understand Christ, we know that Jesus was born not of the Levites, but of Judah, of the tribe of Judah. So how could he be a high priest? Well, there's another fascinating study on who Christ is in the high priestly line of Melchizedek. Turn back to chapter 7, verse 1. This is fascinating. I love this about Melchizedek, and we simply don't have time to get into it tonight. But look into verse 1. I'm only going to read verse 1, but spend some time here as well. In this passage, verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, uh, let me back up to to verse uh, uh, 19 of chapter 6. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner places beyond the curtain or behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who was he? Glad you asked. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So Abraham bows down, There's, you have to finish the rest of the chapter to get all the details, but Abraham bows down to Melchizedek. Why is that important? Because Levi wasn't born yet. Levi wasn't on the scene yet. Abraham praises God through Melchizedek before the Levites. So whose line does Christ come as our, and by the way, there's a lot here to study one day that Christ is of the line of Melchizedek, but what line does Christ come through? 
Melchizedek's line. He is our high priest because of Melchizedek, which means, turn to verse 25 of chapter 7, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because Christ is of the line of Melchizedek, he is your sacrifice and your intercessor. He is the one who stands when Satan accuses. And he says, not only is he arguing on your behalf, but he shows his hands, his side, and his feet, and he says, they are covered by my blood. When the sacrifice is not only the atoner, but the intercessor, there's no further discussion. Because when the judge sees you, he sees Christ. That is your head. That's who we serve. And that's who is, has the right to give us our marching orders. He is our great high priest. So this means that he is the head of the church, or he that is the head of the church, is the savior of the world, the great chief shepherd, the great high priest. Consider for a moment the ramifications of these great truths as I move on to the truth that he is sovereign. He is sovereign. This is one that some within Christendom struggle with. It's hard because we want to recognize that God knows all things and controls all things, but we also recognize that man has a responsibility, a moral obligation and responsibility. And so we recognize those two are battling, but we're not even talking about that because we recognize that that is part of the discussion. But turning back to Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews is already talking to those who have submitted to his sovereignty. He's not writing to those who don't know Christ. He's writing to those who know Christ. And so we don't even have to get into this discussion so much tonight as we need to return here to this text and notice a critical statement in verse 20. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. That takes us right back to the title of the church. It reminds us that the Lord is the head of the church This title, Lord, means he is the one who has the right to rule. And we know that in theological circles, and especially among scholars, and it's debated, it's trickled down into the chairs and pews of many churches, we know that there has been a lot of discussion on the lordship and the sovereignty of God. But tonight, we're not looking at all of that discussion. That's another, you want to talk about that, we'll talk about that somewhere else, just... We'll meet. Let's meet and we'll just plan a series of meetings someplace else and we'll discuss those things. But here, here we recognize that all of that debate is as it pertains to salvation. And the writer of Hebrews is not talking about salvation. He's talking about what happens after salvation. You've already been saved. Those questions are gone now. Those questions are important, but they're not significant to your continued sanctification and growth in the things of the Lord. If you know Christ as Savior and you're serving him, of course you're submitting to his rule. That's what sovereignty means, that he has the right to rule, and he does. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 speaks of the headship of Christ over the church, but While I want you to write that down, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 23, I want you to turn for a moment uh, to Colossians because I want you to see it here in Colossians. And maybe we've had the opportunity to look here in the past, but it's an important one for us here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 
and 19, the scripture says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Boy, take that with what we've learned in the book of Hebrews. If your Christology, that is your understanding of who Christ is, hasn't increased tonight, you haven't been listening. These are rich, wonderful truths. But the reason I had us turn to Colossians chapter 1 is not only is he the head, Ephesians tells us that too, in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23, which I referenced a moment ago. But here, we not only have him as the head, we have him as the preeminent one. There is no others who even come close. There's a lot within the church who believe that they do, but they don't. It is a dangerous thing to follow a leader who believes that he has everything all together and that he has the right to make decisions that no one else has the right to make. Christ is the preeminent one. There is no one who comes even a close second. Regarding Christ's relationship as the head of the church, there can be no doubt he is the only head of the church. And let's turn back for a moment to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, again, going to the chapter 13. He is the sanctifier. He is sovereign and he is the sanctifier. I said we'd get here, Lord willing, and we just barely did by the skin of our teeth <laughs> get here tonight. Uh, we are here in the sanctifier. Uh, notice this. I, I love this phrase. We've kind of highlighted it some already, but I want to highlight the end of it. Verse 21, equip you with every good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Beloved, how wonderful it is that Christ is the one who purifies us, who sets us apart from sin, and leads us to give him glory forever. Did you catch what was said in verse 21? He is working in us. Your shepherd, the head of the church, has not abandoned you, has not left you distant, has continued steadfastly working in you that you may accomplish what pleases the Father. This is not passivity in the head of the church. This is not a lack of knowledge in the head of the church. This is the immutability of our Savior. He is near, He is present, and He is working and faithfully, diligently working in you to accomplish His purposes for you. It's interesting that the writer of Hebrews refers to this as the work of, the, of Jesus when Paul refers to it as the work of the Spirit. What does that tell us? All three members of the triune God are at work in your sanctification. All three are at work. Now we understand that the Spirit of God is the one preeminently doing that work, but he's doing it in submission to the Son of God, who's doing it in submission to the Father. And isn't that what Jesus said in John chapter 14, that if he goes away, that he'll send another, a helper? 
and it'll be better. Can you imagine the disciples on that day and Jesus is sharing John chapter 14 and he's telling them that he's going to go away and he's going to go away and prepare a place for them and if he goes away he'll come again to them and he says but it's better for you that I go away. Can you imagine all of the disciples stopping and saying what? Wait, wait, wait. It's better that you go away? How is that better? But he would send the Spirit of God to fulfill the directives that we see throughout the pages of Paul's writings and that it was through the ministry and oversight and direct intervention of the Son of God in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21. This is his work in us. Why does he do it? Let's talk briefly here and then we will be done. We've had to run through these texts very quickly. Um, But turn over to Ephesians now, and we're going to end here. Uh, Other than just one brief word back in Hebrews, or just referencing it. But turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. The scripture there says this. uh, Listen carefully, because we often hear this in relationships to families, but listen carefully to the overarching theme, which is their husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church, present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Why? We've been talking about, and we've been building. I, I said we're going to start with a structure. We looked at those five purposes of structure last week. Why, why did Christ do all of this for the church? I mean, look at the church. Frankly, she's kind of a mess. Uh, she's broken, right? Uh, f- fractured. Uh, she has quite a few warts and several, several kind of ugly blemishes. Uh, she's certainly not what you would envision of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as his bride. But that's what she's called. That's what she's called. So what is it that Christ did and why did he do it? He did it first out of his great love for us. That's why he did it. What did he do? He gave himself up for her. What does that look like? That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to the church or present rather the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Beloved, one day, this is another little quick side note, one day the groom will return for his bride. That day is the next eschatological events that we're expecting all these things we see in israel can they be prophecy sure they can be prophecy is it required that they be prophecy if suddenly it all ceases and peace is brought for a time because no peace will ever be lasting peace in israel until christ brings it but let's say that everything goes back to the way that it was last friday a week ago this past friday Saudi Arabia is about to sign a peace accord uh, recognizing Israel as a state and, or a nation, and there's 
a better buffer against Iran and things seem to be solidifying someone. We go back there, maybe even better. Does that mean that this wasn't prophecy or that this is prophecy? And I would say that this is the evidence of evil men doing terrible atrocities. Could it be the start of prophecy? Certainly it could be. Is it necessary that it is? No. What's the next event to take place? I can't wait for it. I long for it, and I hope you long for it too. Because I'm not sure. We were talking this afternoon. Andrew and I actually were talking this afternoon, right after church this morning. We were talking about this. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of this desire and anticipation of the tribulation events coming and all of this planning and understanding of prophecy and preparing for that, and you're too busy in glory to even pay attention? I think that would be wonderful. That I'm too busy at the marriage supper of the Lamb to pay any attention to what's going on down here for seven years. Why is that true for you and I to be able to enjoy that? Because Christ is returning for his bride. The one that he bought with his blood. The one that he's the head of. The one that he shepherds. The one that he has sanctified. The one he is sovereign over. The one that he intercedes on behalf of. Who is our great head. This should radically alter decisions you make in the body of Christ. Why do you gather for worship on Sunday? That was a question that was being asked during COVID. And I think we came up with reasonable answers during COVID, but I don't think that by and large we came up with the right answer in COVID. The right answer during COVID is we gather to worship because God directs his bride. That could mean that maybe for a Sunday we don't gather. But that does, mean, does not mean that we cease gathering. Why do we worship the Lord when we gather together? Because he is our head. What value is corporate worship unless our attention is tuned to the Savior who is the head of the church? Therefore, he gets to dictate and direct what we say and what we do. Because he is our head. Every shepherd in this fellowship, and we have a great leadership team here. And I'm looking forward to January and the addition of maybe some new guys coming onto the board. We have a great leadership team and bank of men who can be leaders on the elder level. Those men are simply under shepherds following the chief shepherd. Let us encourage them to look to the chief shepherd because he is our head. It should be comforting to us to know that Christ is the head of the church and that he has not left us to our own vices to build her. Can you imagine if we were left to our own vices to build a church? Can you imagine, as is the thought of some in Christendom, that Christ would sit down across from Peter at the gate to Hades next to the Temple Pan, the Temple to Pan, at the end of the Banus Springs in the land of Dan, and right there, 
Christ is sitting down with his disciples and he looks at Peter and says, don't mess it up. Aren't you glad he didn't say that to Peter? He said, on this rock, looking at himself, I will build my church. Aren't we thankful that Christ is building his church? So that asks us one last application question. Why do we work so hard? Why do we work hard if Christ is the one building his church? I can tell you there's many sleepless nights in the work of shepherding the church. There is tremendous stress and anxieties. We read what happened to Paul. There is so much stress and anxiety, frustrations and aggravations. Why do we work so hard? And this is why. Because it is marvelous, thrilling, glorious, and satisfying to be part of what Jesus Christ is doing as he is building for, uh, rather, building his eternal glory. And you can be a part of it. Can you imagine standing in the heavenly realm, having Christ as the head, and all that was done, the marvelous, thrilling, glorious, and satisfying elements along with all of the sufferings and afflictions that all now got to be understood because you were found faithful to the work of Christ in the church. That's your task. Because this is who your head is. And it's worth it in eternity. One last idea. The tremendous summary of the work of Christ that we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. Spend time there. Spend time there. This is a marvelous summary of what Christ has done for us. And every time you get a little bit of arrogance or a little bit of pride as it relates to the church, you think, well, why aren't they doing this? Or why should they should do this? Or they should do that? Or the church should be a part of this or this or that or whatever it is. Every time you think that, go to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Read it. Pray over it. Read it again. Pray over it some more. And study what it is that Christ did for his church. Let's close tonight. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you as a people who are desperately desirous to do your will. Completely unable and incapable of doing it in our own power. And for that we praise you. Because what we've learned tonight is our head is active in shepherding saving, sanctifying, being sovereign over us, and being our great high priest. Or these are wonderful truths that we would do well to allow them to resonate in our hearts and our souls. And next time we have concerns, next time we have issues, frustrations, or aggravations with another member in the body of Christ, may we be reminded of what Christ has done for his church, his bride. Lord, John 14 gives us the beautiful picture of a Jewish wedding feast when Christ says that he goes away to prepare a place for us and that he's coming again. We long for our head to return for us. We pray that it's today. We pray that today would be the day that Christ returns to meet us in the clouds with him and that we'll be with him where he is always. That our attention will ever and forever be in the majesty and the glory and the splendor that is unimaginable, indescribable, and unceasing. 
We pray that while we yet remain in this life, may we be found faithful as a church, as an ecclesia, called out once, living, truly called out lives for the sake of the glory of the one who bought us, who redeemed us, who continues to sanctify us, and who will be our fascination for all of an eternity. Lord, we love you. We thank you for these few moments we could spend together in your word. We ask your blessing as we depart from here and we launch into this week that is before us that your name would be glorified in all that we say and do, especially as it relates to what we studied tonight. We give you the glory and the honor for it. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.